This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. Do appreciate it. Lots going on, certainly in the political world. We're going to talk to somebody really interesting. If you don't know who Brent Bozell is, you have seen the um, and heard the quality of his work along the way because... Uh, he runs the Media Research Center and uh, founded it, and uh, it's just exactly what the American public wants. And um, they do incredible work. Um, I have done uh, some events with them along the way, and I got to tell you, you're going to love to hear about what the national media is really doing what they're really made of. And you've seen, like I said, the MRC, what they've done. We're going to talk a little bit about the news and then, of course, highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So thanks again for joining us. And let me just uh, mention, again, lots of political news, huge political news, moving every moment, some close races and whatnot still out there. But I do want to mention some things that I maybe have slipped through the crack here. You may have seen this on Tucker Carlson a couple weeks ago, but I really wanted to go back and highlight this again. It's not something that should just, just slip through the cracks. Creighton School of Medicine professor Charles Camacy, I think is his last name, said that there's a bill uh, there in Canada, uh, a move to change the law that would allow... Uh, state doctors without the consent of parents to allow mature minors. Now, mature minors, boy, that sounds subjective, doesn't it? To uh, engage in euthanasia in essentially state-sponsored taking of their own life. Now, uh, how in the world a society can gravitate at some point where the parent is not involved in that discussion, is not a participant in uh, dealing with that situation, that seems like a bridge too far to me. I, I, the parents should and have to be involved with a quote-unquote mature minor. Now, if you're contemplating this type of, you know, the ending of your life, you obviously have some things going on in your life. There's obviously something that's gone really, really the wrong direction. I'm not here to judge on that, but I'm just saying to take the parents out of that equation is just fundamentally wrong. It, I just can't let this slide as part of our news cycle and just glance over it. I just wanted to highlight it and make us all aware. I know we got some good people who listen to this show in Canada, and we care about our Canadian neighbors, those of us that are Americans. But that, that just seems so fundamentally wrong with this society. But this is a Justin Trudeau special. This is, you know, the kind of 
kind of places that uh, that he's taken us. Uh, it's uh, it's just so disappointing that they're even having that discussion. But let's pay attention to it. All right. If that wasn't bad enough, time to bring on the stupid because you know what? There's somebody doing something stupid somewhere. I really want to go down to uh, an article that I saw. Uh, this is out a little while ago. Uh, John Ratcliffe. He was the director of national intelligence. He was a colleague of mine when we were serving in the United States Congress, and he was a congressman uh, there from Texas. He, along with Cliff Sims, who I believe was the deputy director for for strategy and communications, they're essentially working with John Radcliffe uh, with the director of national intelligence, uh, highlighting uh, that U.S. taxpayers, our money in Honduras is paying. We're footing the bill. You, me, anybody who's listening to this show, we're paying taxes to pay for a local drag show. And the State Department is justifying this by as a promotion of diversity and inclusion. You know, and the point that John Radcliffe and Cliff Sims make, which I think is a is a good one, is that soft power, the soft power of the United States of America is really powerful. But used in the right way. That's the projection of America that the Biden-Harris administration wants us to have. Is that we're out there sponsoring drag shows. I thought we were trying to solve the immigration problem. I thought climate change was like the biggest thing in the world. They're out there sponsoring drag shows to make sure that everybody feels included. I, I That's just, sorry, it's kind of sick, sort of disgusting, and a complete waste of taxpayer money. I also want to high, highlight uh, the abuse that Amy Coney Barrett, their Supreme Court Justice, who was duly nominated and... Um, immensely qualified and confirmed as a United States Supreme Court justice. Now, I recognize that all justices probably have detractors. I don't particularly like some of the people that have been nominated on the left, and I'm sure there are plenty of people on the right that they that the left doesn't like. That is the nature of the balancing of the Supreme Court. But we have crossed a barrier, a Rubicon, that I just think is a dangerous one. Because evidently Penguin Random House has a deal with the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett to write a book. I think it would be a widely popular book. Probably a book that I would buy. Maybe a book that you would buy. But there are 500, 500 literary figures. I think it's probably a loosely used term. But 500 literary figures that have signed an open ladder demanding that Penguin Random House shut down the book deal because she voted to help overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, for people in the literary business to suggest that the best way to deal with this is to just shut them down, to ultimately engage in the cancel culture... That is so fundamentally wrong and just downright stupid. So shame on those people for doing that. All right, time to bring on Brent Bozell. I've spent some time with them. Uh, I've spent some time with their organization, uh, the Media Research Center. Fascinating individual, rich history of background and experiences there in Washington, D.C. And they do the analytical research that everybody wants to hear and see because it just feels like the traditional media isn't fair. It isn't balanced, that they are skewed politically. And the Media Research Center goes out, looks at it, takes an objective point of view, puts the numbers behind it. 
and I, I, that's why you continue to hear about them. So let's let's bring in and phone a friend, uh, Brent Bozell. Hello, Brent. Hey, Jason Jaffitz. Jason, how are you? Thank you so much for answering my call. I wasn't quite sure if we could get you to pick up. I'm here for you always. Oh, you're very kind. No, I just I say that with a big smile on my face. I've had some really good interaction with you through the years, and uh, you take a very conservative approach to things, and um, uh, you've built this organization, uh, the Media Research Center, and it's just fabulous. It fills a void like none other, and uh, I just want to chat with you uh, about the MRC, uh, about today's politics. You know, we've got this crazy liberal bent in the media that I really had my eyes open to when I got elected to Congress. And then I thought, how are we going to expose this? What are we going to do about it? And that's where I got an exposure to you and, and the MRC. And it's, uh, it's just been, it's just been wonderful. So maybe if we can kick things off, just let's go back to little Brent, little growing up. I want to hear a little bit about growing up, what it was like for you. And then how you ultimately got to this point where you, you founded this organization and, and what it's doing. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that gives me an opportunity to shamelessly plug a book. Isn't that what we all do, Jason? We all, I we do. All... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book. We published it a few months ago. Uh, and, it, and it's got, it's got a, a, a lot of um, very positive feedback. Um, it, it's called Stops Along the Way, and it's 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 a collection of stories, and they're all mm-hmm. true stories. Uh, it's not a biography. It's not a memoir. It's just just inflection points. Um, but the first chapter deals with with uh, my childhood, which is different, and um, I, I, I didn't make anything up. But people will believe I made things up. It, it is um, because it, it was a. Um, it was a it was a fascinating childhood. Um, you know, dropping names because it's important for for the sake of the narrative. Um, I will. Uh, I'm the the uh, a nephew of Bill Buckley's, and my father was one of the early leaders in the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the founders of National Review, et cetera, et cetera, and very strong Catholics. And uh, uh, we grew up in a town 70 miles outside of Washington, D.C., um, in, in, a, in a little village called Huntley, uh, one of 10 children, um, Catholics, um, in, in, in a place only 70 miles away from the United States. And yet... Uh, you could find yourself in a, as a Catholic in a place where within a week of having moved in, we had the proverbial cross lit on our front yard. All right. So you go through this experience growing up. Um, and then then what happened? Well, I mean, you're you're growing up, even though you're close proximity to uh, the Capitol, but it's not that close to the Capitol. Right. It's not like uh, you just got in the car and drove there every day. But how did the world change for you? Well, well, there, there was a there was a phase two of growing up, which was my 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 father had fallen in love with Spain uh, after World War Two, having hitchhiked to Europe, um, and and found a little town, a little village in in Spain called El Escorial. El Escorial was was then completely unknown to the outside world. Today. It's one of the most fashionable towns in Europe, hmm. uh, but it was 
unknown because this was during Franco's day where there was a worldwide um, embargo against the country uh, right. because of, of things in World War II. And that's another discussion altogether. Yeah. Right. My dad fell in love with Catholic Spain and we went there in 61, spent two years. And then I returned and I did my high school, uh, three years of high school in Spain, in a Spanish school, uh, in, a, in a complex built by Philip II in 1588. So I don't care. Anybody could tell me how old their school is. My <laughs> answer is, did you go to school to some place that was founded in 1588? If so, you can brag. <laughs> uh, but that was an experience. Uh, uh, all, and, and it was the next two chapters in my book, uh, writing about that, because that was another time that, that in today's society, Jason, we wouldn't comprehend in, in the United States. Can you imagine living in a society today where uh, you're a 16-year-old girl in a town and you can walk freely? through the streets of the town at two o'clock in the morning and not have a single worry or or a six-year-old boy and go in somewhere into town to play kickball with your friends at 10 p.m. while your parents are in a cafe a half a mile away having <laughs> a cup of coffee and okay. not a worry in the world. That was Spain uh, back then. So I lived in that world too. And then I went to Texas. Um, and and to college and then came back to 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 uh, Washington. I wanted to be part of this thing called the Reagan Revolution. Um, I you know we knew of Reagan obviously because of my political past, but there was excitement in the air in 1979 because something was happening after after those dreadful years of Jimmy Carter. Uh, there was a sense that there was there, there was some new idea that was starting to emerge um, and it was starting to take root. And I wanted to be part of it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I moved back to Virginia and that's where it all started. So you get back there. Reagan's elected. Um, the world now is changing. Um, in fact, it seems to me there are a lot of parallels and comparisons to Joe Biden and Jimmy Carter. I mean, oh, yeah. oh, policy-wise, the, the feeling and mood of the country, those things. Now, I was quite small then, but, um, but you know, the more you read and see and study it, uh, it just seems like they're almost one and the same. Yeah, a lot of parallels. Um, here's, here's the difference. Uh, for his time... Uh, Jimmy Carter could be a mean-spirited SOB, but he was he was Mother Teresa compared to today's Democrats, um, and the Democratic Party uh, was 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 a conservative uh, compared to today's Democratic Party. Um, the there was a sense of malaise, uh, just as with the Democrats today. They didn't have a plan B. Uh, their plan B was a continuation of plan A. Um, and, and all they could do was try to tear down this guy, Ronald Reagan. Uh, they, they ran into the buzzsaw of, of a problem that, that Ronald Reagan was just um, insanely likable. Right. Uh, the more the more you attacked him, the more he gave you a good hearted chuckle and a joke. Um, you know, Donald Trump uh, uh, responds to an attack with a with a, with with the right hand cross. That's far more powerful than your left hand hook. 
Uh, Ronald Reagan responded with a smile and, and a joke, um, was the eternal optimist, um, and but had a bold vision. The media at the time, I remember this, Jason, so vividly. Um, Ronald Reagan was, was, was I mean, Bill Buckley was asked um, a couple of years before he died, uh, as as part of a symposium to name his um, uh, his 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 favorite president, and and or the most important president um, in America, and everybody had named the usual suspects: George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, whatever. Bill Buckley said Ronald Reagan, and they looked at him horrified, and he said he's the best and he's the smartest. They looked at him doubly horrified because Ronald Reagan was supposed to be a stupid actor. Ronald Reagan was smarter than all of them combined. He understood that when he communicated, the great communicator never communicated to the media. He always communicated through the media. And he was always talking to the average Joe. And he called the average Joe an American hero. His concept was simply, if you do your part, for America, you're a hero. If you work at 7-Eleven, you're a hero. If you're a school teacher, you're a hero. If you're a bus driver, you're a hero. It doesn't matter. If you do your part for America, you're a hero. And he would make everyone feel heroic. Um, this is why patriotism exploded under Ronald Reagan, because suddenly America was really cool as a country after years of malaise under the Democrats. It was a cool place to be. And that's what was contagious about him. And you wanted to be part of that movement. So what uh, what was your part of that movement? I mean, you, your heart was well, in it. You, I, you had certainly had the family connections. What what uh, what was well, your and you know, it was crazy. I came to Washington and uh, with a wife and two newborns, um, I guess one and a half and a half. Um, and uh, I needed this crazy thing called a job. Right. And uh, so I had to take the first thing I could get, which was a, a, a fundraising job at a group called the National Conservative Political Action Committee. And I remember vividly what my, my um, uh, I got paid $15,200, not $400, $200. And, um, <laughs> but uh, I took the job because uh, I needed a job and I figured I, I, I'd do that and then get a real job at some point. Um, the National Conservative Political Action Committee was the largest conservative group in the country at the time. And within about a year, I was the finance director for it. And I went on to become the president of it. But in 1983, I was I was visiting, uh, I was in an airport at the Avis parking lot in a DFW airport in Texas uh, with my boss at the time. And I, and I suggested to him that, that we were already like that Greek uh, figure, uh, uh, Sisyphus, you know, the fellow uh, pushing the boulder up the mountain, only to have it roll down and flatten him uh, because of the media. Because no matter how good our story was, and this is 1983, no matter how good our story was, no matter how sound our principles and um, a positive the message, it, it it went in as prime rib uh, in one end, but when it went through the uh, filter of, of, of the media, it came out raw sewage on the other. And the American people, think about this, Jason. At the time, what did we mean by media? There were three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and this fledgling little thing called CNN. 
the uh, uh, newspapers were dominated by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. Uh, you had two wire services, AP and UPI, and three major uh, magazines, Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News. They all had one thing in common. Every single one of them was liberal. There wasn't a single, not one single media outlet that was conservative, making me look back on that and wonder how in the world did Ronald Reagan ever get elected? Right. Uh, you, you, what you had, and I'm not kidding you, I'm not exaggerating here, Jason. If you were a conservative and you wanted to communicate with the American people at that time, Paul Harvey was a radio commentator out of Chicago, and he had an afternoon commentary for about 20 minutes. That was one. You had Human Events, a news, a, a weekly newspaper with 30,000 subscriptions. That was two. The, 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 the National Review magazine that was published every two weeks, that was the third way. And the fourth way was putting a message in the bottle and throwing it into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> that was, we didn't, we couldn't communicate. We, we, we didn't have talk radio. You didn't have any of those things. But Rush Limbaugh revolutionized everything. Uh, in 1989 or, or 88, a year right after the MRC was was launched, actually. Um, uh, but we didn't have anything. And, and so my argument to my boss then was that uh, until we did something about the media, I didn't think the conservative movement could really advance beyond this state of the art figure called Ronald Reagan. Um, that 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 at that time and we looked at a survey that was done by the LA Times, and it showed that 75% of the American people believed the media were objective. Think about that. Believe mm -hmm. the media were objective. And there is no such thing, Jason. You and I know that. It's no such thing. Unless you've had a frontal lobotomy, you have an opinion. And you saw a bias is going to come out somehow in the news. Uh, yes, 75% believed that what they were getting from Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw or Peter Jennings back then was objective truth. I submitted to my boss that while the conservative movement had all manner of organizations, political uh, action committees, foundations, associations, we had we had business groups, we had all manner of different weapons. There wasn't a single national of, uh, uh, organization that was confronting the news media, which were yeah. the most powerful arm of the left. And until we could do that, that I thought we were we were never going to win a, a lasting battle. But what was missing was an effort to analyze what the media were doing. Some conservatives had a problem with the liberal media, but nobody could prove anything about bias other than, well, anecdotally, Dan Rathers had something last night that was liberal. That doesn't mean he's liberal. Right, it just right. means that last night he said something. Or so the, the Media coverage, Research Center yeah. was born. Uh, as as a, as as part of a foundation, and and then in 1987 uh, we opened it as its own organization, and the rest is history. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Brent Bozell right after this. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let, let's go back to those days of, you know, the Walter Cronkites and the Tom Brokaw. I mean, I, for whatever reason, our household seemed to watch an awful lot of Tom Brokaw and 60 Minutes and, you know, those types of shows. And, but you had but, to. That's, that's all you how, had. How much worse is it, is it today? Because I still got the sense that back then that was better than um but maybe i was just totally oblivious and naive and and unknowing because there was nothing to compare it to jason they were public enemy number one they were uh we went after them in a rabid fashion and they fought back in a rabid fashion and we did a lot of our fighting in places like cnn that would invite me on during the Gulf War to critique their own coverage of the Gulf War. <laughs> Can you imagine CNN today inviting a conservative to have basically a free microphone to critique them for an hour? That's okay. the media then. So, so what, what, what's the difference? And I say this kind of half jokingly, but, but really quite seriously. I long for the good old days of Dan Rather and, and the good old days of Tom Brokaw and the good old days of Peter Jennings. They were liberals and they had a bias, but they weren't leftists. What you have today is a an utterly weaponized leftist uh, political movement in the national me news media. Back in the 1990s and late 1980s, they would argue incorrectly but they would argue that they were objective and they didn't have a liberal bias. They could they could put forward an argument to say that. Today, notice, Jason, no, nobody even tries. They don't even try. I mean, you would, you would laugh if CNN said today that they that they were leftists. Yeah, I could go down and I could visit. I, I would have meetings of my trustees, my top supporters. We would meet at CNN in Atlanta with the president and a team of vice presidents. That's the kind of relationships you had then while we went after each other. But right. but you, you, there was there was there was mutual respect. Um, we we were all we all, we went out of our way to praise them. The few times they did things right, they would listen to us. They would correct things. Can you imagine NBC listening to anybody and correcting something today? Not not a million years. So what what happened along the way? What happened to these so-called journalism schools? Because it seems like the people that are graduating now, and all, you know, some have, some haven't, um, but they come not with the skill set as much as a set of activism and a mindset of activism rather than objectivity. You know, my my friend and former colleague there in Congress. He, he, he used to like to say, you know, um, it, as it relates to uh, investigations, they have never 
ever seen a democratic investigation that it was was wrong and that it should continue in perpetuity but they could never ever justify or um allow a republican investigation to ever have any legitimacy whatsoever and 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 that's the transition that i think we're about to undergo but but the underlying premise here is that what happened to the columbia school of journalism and and some of these other institutions that are supposed to teach these kids objectivity and just reporting the news because that doesn't seem to happen no you know it's 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 a very good question and and jason i'm not i'm not altogether sure that 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 i know the answer or that anyone knows the answer um but if there if there is an inflection point i would suggest it was uh something happened during the clinton administration um it's as if uh uh, i i would suggest this two points point two inflection points one is the clinton administration um the the bill clinton arrived in washington with a swirl of scandal around him with a with all manner of controversies white water was, was just one of them uh jennifer flowers Martin, uh, uh paula jones and there were the uh juanita broderick the rape of juanita broderick i mean there was bad bad stuff swirling around him the media had to make a choice confront it and investigate it or sweep it under the rug and they chose to sweep it under the rug. It, um, and and here, here's the evidence. Uh, it, it, I, I could go back to the memory banks and give me about 10 minutes, and I'll come up with 20 different um, uh, uh, controversies. I'm exaggerating, maybe 15 uh, different controversies slash scandals surrounding Bill Clinton. And where investigative journalism is concerned, here's the reality. They never got to the bottom of a single one of those scandals. They yeah. didn't want to do it. And I think at that point was where they lost their way journalistically. Um, you saw that that repeated again during the Obama administration with people like Hillary Clinton. The, the, the media chose not to investigate any of the Obama uh, uh, scandals, unless there was a FOIA and you guys in Congress held hearings, at which point they still wouldn't cover it. But but think about Richard Nixon. Think about how Woodward and Bernstein and the rest of the friends would not let go of Watergate until they got to the bottom of it. They've been doing the same thing with Trump, even buying falsehoods they knew were falsehoods. And here we go again, refusing to recognize the fact that they were falsehoods. But do you feel like, I mean, in a large part, a lot of the immediate research center's work is I probably responsible for this, but I, I get the sense that like the American people are onto their game. I, th- I get the sense that they, they understand that. Is that a consequence of having an alternative that has more balance in, in a place like a Fox news that's publishing this podcast, obviously, or is it um, social media? Is it the fact that we can clip and replay and and send out our clips ourselves? Like it seems to me, and I don't know if I have anything, you know, objective um, other than um, my perception of it, that the American people understand that yeah, there really is a bias. 
Well, um, again, a yes and no on an answer on that. Uh, when when I remember the first meeting I had uh, with with my donors uh, in 1987, I think there were I'm not kidding you. I think there were three, um, <laughs> and they weren't even donors yet. I was trying to convince them, and uh, maybe four. And we were sitting around a table, and one lady uh, said, "I'll never forget these words." She said, she, "When when I gave her the the uh, the pitch." Um, she she said, Brent, with 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 all due respect, who do you think you are? Um, now this was an excellent question. We, right. we the media research then was uh, a staff of seven. Uh, we had seven phones because we got a good deal on them. We only had two desks, so five people didn't even have <laughs> desks. Um, we had a rented computer uh, and a black and white television set. That that was the media the the, uh, the national organization called the Media Research Center. And we were going up against a multi-billion dollar industry in the news media. My argument to her was uh, twofold. One, that if we didn't do it, she should stop donating to all her other causes because nothing was going to succeed so long as it had to go through the filter right. of the media. Right. Uh, but secondly, and more importantly, if we believed in the free market system and if we were able to expose the media and simply educate the American people that what they were getting was not objective truth, but subjective opinion. If we believed in market economics, there would be a market alternative created that would want where people would go to. So when Rush, when Rush God love him, uh, Rush, I don't know how many times, credited us for his success because he said, had it not been for us, there wouldn't have been a market demand for what he did. Well, that's a joke because Rush Limbaugh created Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh was one of the most successful enterprises um, in, 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 in the history of this nation. Um, but it is true that we did create a market demand. And there was a market with that market demand was has been filled since then in many, many different ways in television by Fox, God, God bless Fox, uh, with social media, uh, online, all these di different things. So the, cons the, the conservative voice is getting through. But here's the new threat that's emerged, and and Jason, it's a frightening one because it's a it's a direct threat to the democratic process, whether we like it or not. People still watch NBC or CBS or ABC or CNN or read the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, those people are now the victims of an extraordinary disinformation campaign that disinformation campaign is gone beyond the bias by commission where you take a story and you twist it it is now far more nefarious it's the bias by omission where they deliberately choose not to report a story and let me tell you jason how dangerous that has become to democracy you may believe you may not believe that the elections in 2020 were stolen. I will argue this, and I will argue this convincingly because I've got scientific evidence. The media, the news media, stole the 2020 elections. What do I mean by that? We took a survey of Joe Biden's voters in the seven swing states of Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We asked them a series of seven questions. Did they know a certain issue? If they didn't, 
we asked them, those who didn't, would you have voted for Biden if you had known this? And then we took that number and we put it across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We asked questions like, did you know that Kamala Harris is to the left of Bernie Sanders? Now, don't you think if Donald Trump had chosen the most right-wing senator in America as his running mate, that would have been a national news story. <laughs> the fact that, that Kamala Harris had a voting record to the left of a socialist ought to have been a story. Over 50% of Democrats had no idea about that. We asked them, had you known, would you have voted for Biden? Enough of them said they wouldn't, four point some percent or whatever. If you put that across those seven states, Trump would have won six of them. He would have won 295 electoral votes. We asked that about national, about energy independence. Did they know the GDP had grown by 33% in the last year? Did they know that 11 million jobs have been created in the last three months? Those series of questions. Here's the big one that we asked. Did they know about Hunter Biden and the laptop? A full 45.1% of Biden's voters had never heard of Hunter Biden and the laptop. Let me repeat that. 45.1% had never heard of him. Then we asked them, had you known about that laptop, would you have voted for Biden? Not would you have voted for Trump, would you, would you have voted for Biden? 9.4% said they would not have voted for Biden. You take that 9.4% and you put it in those swing states, Donald Trump would have won Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, would have won every single swing state, would have won 311 electoral votes, an absolute landslide. If the media had only reported the news and witness what happened since the election, you now have the New York Times that completely buried that story. Now admitting several months after the elections, well, I guess we should have reported it. You now have Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook admitting Facebook deliberately censored that story because the Justice Department told them they needed to do that. So you now have the the, the unequivocal evidence, the media themselves admitting they censored a story, they altered the Democratic election of 2020. And my fear is, Jason, that they'll try to do it again. Yeah, I you know, these so-called uh, intelligence officials that came out and said, you know, what they said, that it was, you know, Russian disinformation and all that. How can that not be a tier one story on the backside when it gets verified that it really is his laptop? I mean, and, and so many of those people are still there. They're yeah. still there. Yeah, it, it, it is stunning. And, and tell me about your your view of uh, social media. Um, because they've been given some special privileges, some limited liability. Um, what, what's your take on social media? Well, they are emerging as a, as a far greater threat than the news media. Why do we say that? The numbers tell the story. On NBC News, I mentioned NBC News. Uh, their, their nightly newscast is, is something like four or five million, uh, maybe six million uh, people on, on a good night. Uh, compare this now. Facebook, 12.7 billion 
people are on Facebook, right. Twitter, um, 700,000 plus people are on Twitter. All news is now made on Twitter, YouTube. Uh, just 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 statistics here. Um, YouTube, uh, five billion. That's what the B five billion videos are downloaded every single day on YouTube. That's Google, crazy. 92.4% of all searches worldwide go through Google. Now, how important is that? We just finished a study. We released it last week. And and I was shocked by this, this study. We looked at the top 12, the, the, the 12 most contested Senate races in America today to see how Google was covering everything. Um, everything is on the first page of Google. Not less than 1% uh, of, of the public ever goes beyond page one. Right. Uh, so if you're on page two, you might as well be on Mars because nobody knows you exist. We looked at those at those 12 races in 10 of the 12 races. The Democrats were listed ahead of the Republicans in seven of those 12 races. The Republicans didn't exist on page one. They were on mm. page two. Wow. This is a deliberate attempt to swing the campaigns. You've had Twitter, you know, Twitter's look, the last four presidential campaigns were decided by social media. Barack Obama used Facebook brilliantly in 2008. Nobody saw the strategy that his side employed. They were they got to give them got to give them all the political credit in the world, although they're the most, they're the most dishonest SOBs I've ever known. Um, but uh, they pulled off a masterpiece. They knew that the the, the, the the leftist worldview of Barack Obama was not supported by very many people. They, they had a, a, a staunchly minority, I don't mean black, I mean size, uh, a parcel of the American electorate. They knew that. They did something that was unlike anything done before. In, in, in conventional politics, you start with your base in the primary, as you know, and then in the general, you go towards the middle to get try to capture the 10, 15, 20% in the middle. Um, and that's how po political equations go. Barack Obama did something entirely different in 2008. He started with the left, he with the far left, and he ended it with the far left. He did it through Facebook, where he built an army of followers and had them built up and energized to such a degree that his campaign made the calculation, my minority can beat your majority if I have my minority more energized than your majority. And that is precisely what he pulled off against McCain in 2008. In 2012, Obama doubled down on Facebook again. Um, he was he spent $100 million on Facebook. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney on Election Day was selling baseball caps for $25. He, he had no concept what he was doing on social media. And again, Obama won. In 2016, Trump went to social media, but he chose Twitter. And he right. put his eggs in the Twitter basket. And he built up the biggest following in the world. The media could have, news media could attack him all day long. When he was doing those crazy tweets, he was communicating in his way as Ronald Reagan 
committed, communicated in his way. He was communicating directly with his followers, and it worked beautifully. In 2020, Twitter banished him and censored him, and they cost him the election. Had he been allowed to communicate on 20, uh, in 2020 on Twitter, that's another way he would have won the presidential campaign. So the social media people have controlled the last four elections. They're playing a huge role uh, today in the public conversation in things you're allowed to do. Isn't it great what Elon Musk is? Well, that's what I was going to ask you is with the meltdown from the left. I mean, people want to like leave the country. It's just so funny to see these celebrities and these these leftists say, oh, my goodness. You mean there's going to be balance? We can't operate in an atmosphere where where both sides get to tell their story. Well, you know, you, you, I can say, you know, flippantly that, that uh, there, uh, there was a report in The Economist I saw about an hour ago <laughs> where in the last three days, Republicans have, have uh, 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 identified 477,000 followers they didn't have four days ago before Elon Musk yeah. walked in. And by the way, that kitchen sink stunt, I mean, yeah. I've got, <laughs> look, I, I have been responsible for some good stunts in my time. I have watched in awe watching others do better, but for him to walk into, into, into to Twitter. <laughs> Twitter with this, let this sink in sign. I mean, I, I, I felt, I, if I'd been driving a car, I would have hit a tree laughing. <laughs> uh, what, what a stump that was. Um, I, but, you know, and the employee meltdown is just cracking me up too, because you would think if you were an employee and suddenly Elon Musk, who's, you know, everything's turned to gold that he's touched. Um, and, and all those those uh, those greenies who bought a a Tesla, um, you know, it helped fund the fortune that now allowed him to purchase uh, Twitter. Uh, it just puts a big smile on everybody's face. Yeah, and, and what the, what that what that should tell everybody, Jason, is the degree to which the 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 patients were running the asylum at Twitter. Uh, you know, when when uh, Twitter was was unmasked for its shadow banning efforts um, a few years ago, uh, where uh, the, the shadow ban yeah. uh, technology is such that you are someone and you think you're communicating um, with the public, your message is never getting through. And it turned out the people being shadow banned were all from the House Freedom Caucus, um, conservative members of, of, of the Republican Party. I mean, just imagine that that coincidence. Um, so 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 that came out and 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 it was some mid-level person somewhere who did that there's zero and i mean zero assurances that that ever stopped this is this is something that that people i think thought well once it was exposed that means it's it, they stopped it no these people you've got tens of thousands of people working there palo alto i mean that, that silicon valley is the most radical left-wing uh, hotspot in America today, they see themselves on a mission. They know how powerful they are. And that's the thing. They know how powerful they are. They know their power extends worldwide. What you're looking at, Jason, is this is the greatest threat to free speech in the history of man that we're seeing right now, because you're being told you if you either will conform 
to what we want uh, to our worldview, or you're not allowed to communicate with your fellow man. I just gave you those numbers. Just yeah. imagine if you know if I if you want to communicate with somebody on Facebook, you're not allowed to say certain oh, words. Now that so then ultimately you're now having the censorship of thought. Now you think. You, you, you think about something, I better not say that. So it's affecting how you think about things. It's that nefarious and that dangerous. We've never seen this in the history of man, where they have put down rules, and the rule applies to Poland, and it applies to Bosnia, and it applies to Tanzania, and it applies to the United States. It, it really is stunning. Look, and I lived through that. I, I You know, this whole shadow banning uh i i i was on that list because i can tell you i'd put out a were you really put, I didn't oh yeah that. i put out something that says oh i you know a nice night with my wife and look at this beautiful sunset and cut it you know i had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers and it would go out to thousands and thousands of people and then i would say something like uh i think biden's wrong on energy policy and it was retweeted like you know six times like right. really I got 500 plus thousand people on Twitter and only six of them liked my saying that. I don't think so. And, and so, um, yeah, a lot more on that conversation, uh, I think, to, to be had along the way. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back right after this. Brent, what the MRC has done is truly remarkable because it takes objective analysis and quantifies it in a way that is just i mean they can't deny it and no. and i hope you continue to do that and expose it and show it for what it is because there's a lot of people that maybe feel like that but then when they see the black and white of the numbers and the statistics the number of minutes i love it when you do the minutes of how much airtime this was given versus how much this was given, whether it's the Jesse Smollett story or whatever it is. Oh, they don't even run it. And um, it, that kind of work does great. But before you go, because we've gone a little bit long here, uh, Brent, sure. I, I got to ask you some rapid questions just to sure. get to know you a little bit better. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Uh, first concert you attended. First concert I attended. Uh, I would say the Moody Blues. That's legit. That would be good. Um, this this high school that you uh, that you went to way back in the day. What right. was the mascot? Oh, they didn't have one. They just flogged people. They didn't like. <laughs> These were Augustinian monks. They whipped you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's one way to do it. Okay. <laughs> um, any favorite pet along the way? Did you have pets growing up? Yeah, well, in the book, uh, I, I actually one of the things we read about is pets, um, and and uh, there wasn't an animal we didn't have. Uh, yeah, it's always the dog that you remember the most. It's all it's always the yeah, dog. yeah. All right, if you could invite one person over, dead or alive, one person over, break bread, share an evening with, who would that be? Stonewall Jackson. Wow, you didn't even you didn't even pause to have to no. think about that no, one. I've got why, Matt, why Stonewall I've got Jackson? Well, I'm looking at his picture right now on my wall uh, that my children gave me years ago. Um, Stonewall, I'm a Virginian. Stonewall Jackson was one of the most extraordinary military commanders in history. Um, Stonewall Jackson was also a, um, a magnificent personality, a very, very complex. Some people would say very eccentric, uh, which, which he probably was. Um, but he was a, he was a, a brilliant man 
Um, I would say he and Robert E. Lee. Uh, we could spend another hour talking about that, and, and we'd be done, and, and, and you'd be cursing everybody who ever suggested Robert E. Lee's statue be taken down. There was no man in the United States of America who did more to try to heal the divisions of the war than Robert E. Lee after the war, and that's, that, that is an undeniable fact. Uh, but Stonewall Jackson, because he was such a brilliant commander, I'd love to get inside his head. Uh, interesting, interesting. All right, what uh, unique talent, uh, Brent Brozell, what, uh, what unique talent do you bring to the table that nobody really knows about? Uh, I wish, I wish I had continued, uh, but I played a pretty good guitar once. No, well, that's good. That's good. You can always pick that guitar back up. Uh, but, not, uh, but once you hear me play today, you say, please, Brent, put it well, down. Well, maybe let's do a little practicing first. But, yeah, that would be good. Uh, a big one for me. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Absolutely. With ham, oh. absolutely. And a good beer. <sighs> you, 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 there's there's only, no, wet fruit I didn't say pizza. it was my favorite. I didn't say it was my favorite. If you ask me, ask me I'd say pepperoni calzone. But, but pineapple on pizza, yes, it can be done. And you, you know, you can keep your manhood and have one, one, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, be a, be him, her, be him, him, and and have a pineapple. Yes, you can. <laughs> All right. Last question. Uh, best advice you ever got? Uh, don't ever let anything control you. And that was the argument that my parents put to me about stopping smoking cigarettes. Uh, they both quit, uh, but but it was don't let anything ever control you interesting interesting uh brent bozell the media research center thank you so 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 much for joining us and and uh for those of you that haven't seen that work uh you see it quoted and talked about a lot on fox news and elsewhere and it really does illuminate things in the the liberal bias that is uh pervasive in in the national media and uh a uh, lot of good data that's coming out of that organization. Thanks to Brent. I'm glad you founded it and got those three, four people to sit around and say, you know what, if you don't help fund this thing, you might as well not do anything else because I think you're probably onto something and the world's a better place for you doing it. So thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. I do appreciate it. Jason, you're a great friend. Thank you. All right. I can't thank uh, Brent Bozell for joining us. I can't thank him enough. He, he's just a great energetic figures got a real vision of where this is going and thank goodness he set this up and that they're moving this thing in the right direction because i think it benefits us all and and creates a little check and balance on the people that are supposed to be a check and a balance uh and that is our our national media so uh again i can't thank him i thank him enough i hope you're able to rate this podcast i hope you're able to subscribe to the podcast now, you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. So when you come back next time, just keep that in mind. Again, thank you again for joining us. We'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.